You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Okay, good morning everyone. Um, we're starting a new series this morning that we're going to be in for some time in the book of First Samuel. It's called After God's Heart. I want to just recommend to you a book um, which is called Straight to the Heart of First and Second Samuel by Phil Moore. You can get this on Amazon for £8.99, uh, 60 bite-sized uh, insights into those uh, books. Really, really worth getting hold of if you want to go a little bit deeper into what we're preaching through in this series. Um, yesterday afternoon, I was at a party and uh, was speaking with someone who, uh, right at the outset of our conversation, identified themselves as an atheist, said, I don't believe in God. And uh, we got into a very interesting discussion. It was a good discussion. And uh, in it, we, we got onto the subject of what makes human beings different to animals? What, what is the kind of core difference there? And uh, as I reflected on it uh, after the conversation and thinking about today's message, I thought to myself, one of the big things that makes us very different from the animal kingdom is our obsession, seemingly, with stories. We love stories, don't we? And if you go back thousands of years, you'll see that people depicted stories on their caves where they lived. You can see over history, rich tapestries of uh, famous battles. You can uh, come coming forward in time more. Uh, we love uh, stories of heroism in war, and we love uh, stories in soap operas about uh, characters that we may have followed for years and seeing what unfolds in their lives. We as human beings, we love stories. And First Samuel is an amazing story, full of uh, very interesting characters, some who were the good guys, some who were the bad guys, some who started strong and then uh, faded away. Uh, it's full of uh, acts of heroism and of cowardice, acts of faith and acts of rebellion. It's an amazing story. And as we go through this story together over the coming weeks and months, we're going to see uh, foreshadows of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus in these stories. Even though uh, these uh, stories were recorded a thousand years before Jesus would come to earth, we're going to see things that will remind us of Jesus. And we're going to see uh, prophecies about Jesus' coming, that what he would do as the Messiah, the Savior, we're going to see these uh, as we go through these stories. And I want to just make this point at the beginning of this series, that these are true stories. The book of 1 Samuel references uh, historical uh, goings-on that other historical records also reference. We believe totally that these are true stories. These are not myths. These are not made-up uh, stories, as you're going to see as we go through the passage today. These were quite gritty stories. They weren't, the Bible doesn't airbrush reality. It's quite messy, the story that we're going to go through uh, today. These are true stories, real people and these are lives that we can learn from. These things have been recorded, we see in, in 1 Corinthians 10, for our benefit. The, the Old Testament has been recorded so that we might learn uh, from the mistakes of others, is what that passage says, essentially, that we will not go after the evil things that others have gone after. This is profitable for us. As we go through uh, 1 Samuel together, we will benefit from it. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness. So as we go through these stories, uh, this is going to be good for us. And it's going to help us to learn to be more like Jesus. So I'm excited about that. Are you excited about that? As we go through uh, these stories together. We're calling it After God's Heart um, because King David, who's one of the major characters in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, he is described later in the Bible by God as being a man after his own heart. That's something that I would love to have said about me, that I was after God's heart. And we see in chapter 16 
that God, uh, he's not interested in the outward appearance. It says here in chapter 16 and verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God is interested in what's going on inside, not the external, but on the inside. And that's why we're calling this series After God's Heart, because God in this story was after the heart of the nation, He was after the heart of the leaders of that nation and of the ordinary people. And God, I believe, is after our hearts. He wants our hearts to be for him. So if you have a Bible with you, let's read the first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1 together. If you don't have a Bible, then the verses will come up on the screens around the room. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We're going to look firstly this morning at Elkanah's failure. We're going to look at prayer later on in in a big way. But firstly, we're going to look at Elkanah's failure. This is a guy who had failed when it came to his family life. This was a messy situation. He had two wives. His first wife, Hannah, she was unable to conceive, so he decided he would take another wife. Uh, This week, there's been, um, in the news, you may have come across it, uh, a conservative politician has said uh, what he believes um, about same-sex marriage. And uh, I was reading some comments on an article about this, uh, his statement, and a whole bunch of people were pointing out the fact that in the Bible, there are people who have more than one wife. And they would say, well, how on earth can Christians um, start to um, pontificate about marriage where in their own scriptures there's a whole bunch of people who have more than one wife? That's hypocritical. Now, what we see here is that the Bible is describing the situation. It's not making a comment that this is a good thing. It's being descriptive, not prescriptive. That's what's going on here. We don't see in the Bible uh, God condoning people having more than one wife. This is the fact Elkanah took another wife for himself. As we mentioned earlier, these things, these things were written for us that we might not pursue the evil things like they did. It was, it was quite normal back then to have more than one wife. And yet God's people have always been called to be a called out people, to be a people who look different to the world, who go God's way when the world is going in the opposite direction. And we see here that whilst uh, Elkanah had more than one wife, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. This was a very painful situation. You've got Panina here provoking Hannah, mocking her, irritating her, and Elkanah's family was a mess. As we see later on in this story, King David took more than one wife. It didn't go well for him. 
King Solomon, his son, took hundreds of wives, and it went very, very badly for him. The whole of the nation ended up being divided in two. And really, when you look at the story, Solomon made a mess of his personal life, and the nation followed him in it. So this story, it, uh, it describes what's going on here, but it doesn't, condone, it doesn't condone bigamy. It doesn't condone having more than one husband or more than one wife. We, as God's people, believe that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman until death parts them. That's God's way. That's God's way. It's very clear in the scriptures. And even though there are other things described, these are not God condoning them. This is just simply describing what's happened. So Elkanah, he sees this mess that he's made in his family. This was a dysfunctional family. Maybe you, you might be here this morning thinking, I came from a dysfunctional family. I came from a family, a family background that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. The good news for you this morning is that God can bring good out of that. We're going to see in a little while that, that uh, Hannah does have a son. And his, his, uh, he becomes a very significant part of Israel's history. God can bring good even out of dysfunction and mess. So Hannah, she's desperate for kids. It's a very hard time to be barren. It's a very painful experience for her. She would have been, um, people would have scorned her. It wouldn't have just been Panina. Others would have looked down on her. Others would have, uh, it would have been a very shameful thing to not be able to have children. Um, Very painful these days to not have children if you want to have children. But many today would choose not to have children. So the stigma is not the same. For Hannah, this was very, very serious indeed. And Elkin, he's trying to make amends. He's trying to treat Hannah with love. And uh, we see it doesn't really make things better. It actually makes things worse. And he can observe that she's in pain, but he doesn't really enter into that pain. He doesn't understand it. As far as he's concerned, Panina's had some kids. And so he's got what he needs. He's got his heirs to his, uh, his family. But he sees here that Hannah is upset. And he's saying, why on earth are you crying? Why are, why are you not eating? Why are you so sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? This is what he asks her. He is a failure of a husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see some of the clearest uh, instruction for marriage in the whole of the Bible. And the Apostle Paul is writing to husbands and wives. Let's turn there together if you have a Bible with you. He's writing to husbands and wives and he's, he's really he's saying, in light of all that Jesus has done for you, this is how you're to live. And he says this about husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, this is the bit, husband, you've got to listen up to this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. How did Jesus love the church? Well, he stepped into the world. He loved incarnationally. He became flesh. He, he, he belonged in heaven. Okay? He deserved to be in heaven with his Father, with the Holy Spirit, in community, receiving praise and worship from the angels, in glory. And yet he, because he so loved the world, because he so wanted to take for himself a people who would be his very own, he stepped into the world. He stepped out of comfort. He laid aside things that he was entitled to in order to love 
the world. Knowing that he would be despised, knowing that he would be rejected by the same people that he had given breath to. So that he could become, as we see in the scriptures, so that he could become a sympathetic high priest. That means that he could become a priest who really understands what we're going through. Who really understands what life is like for us. Who's able to identify with the temptations that we go through. We'll go through temptation. Jesus, it says in the scriptures, was tempted in every way just as we were. So a husband who loves his wife like that will step into her world. Who will step in and seek to understand the challenges that she's going through. He'll seek to understand something of what's going on in her heart. Husbands, I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you seek to enter in? Do you seek to enter in to your wife's world for a moment to understand what life is like for her? Do you make an effort to sympathize, to love incarnationally? Elka didn't do that. Elkanah didn't do that, and it made things worse. Now, you might say, well, my wife's not really behaving in a way that makes her particularly lovely right now. You might think it's very hard to do that because she's not really being very easy to love at the moment. Imagine Jesus saying to the Father, Okay, Father, I know you want me to go to earth, but right now they're not exactly behaving very well. And so I'm just going to hold off until they clean up their act a little bit, and then I'll go. If we, if we take that view, it's a bit like us saying, well, this is very noble of you, Paul. These words are very noble. They sound very good, laying down, uh, laying down my life for my wife and so on. But I'm just going to hold off until she cleans up her act a little bit. This is not what Paul's saying here. And the Bible has instructions for wives too. It says that they're to respect their husbands, to love their husbands, to submit to them as the church submits to Christ. If you take the view of, oh, I'm only going to respect my husband when he starts to sort himself out a little bit. This is not what the passage is saying. This is not what the scriptures teach us. Husbands, we're to cherish our wives. What is it that makes your wife feel cherished? You've got to work that out. And it probably will change over the years. It will probably change over many, many years. One thing I've worked out recently is that my wife feels cherished when I take the time to speak to her when I get home from work. Because oftentimes, she's had a day with three toddlers. And they don't make for very good company sometimes. And they don't make a very stimulating conversation. And so to come home and actually to speak about my day is a way often whereby my wife feels cherished. So husbands, work out how it is that your wife feels like you're cherishing her and do it. Work it out. Study her. Work out what it is that you know she really appreciates and do it. Are you, is it to listen well? Is it to be considerate with the house tasks? You know, Sarah and I, we've been married about eight years. And uh, so for many of you, you're thinking, goodness me, you've got a long way to go. Many of you thinking, oh, we've, been, we've, we've clocked 30 or 40 on the clock now. And uh, you've got much more experience than, than we have. But as we've sat with people who are going through difficulties in their marriage, or some that are preparing for marriage, we have found that when husbands set the tone, when they seek to love their wives well, when they lead in this area, that it makes for a very healthy marriage that it makes for their wives responding in a way that really blesses them. And I, I think if I was to summarize the teaching from Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul gives on marriage, I'd say this, husbands set the tone. Husbands set the tone. If you're seeking after God, if you're putting him first, you'll set the tone for your marriage and it will be a healthy one. As you, as you seek to serve your wife, as you seek to lay down your life for her, like Christ loved the church, that it, she'll find it very easy to respect you. She'll find it very easy to follow your lead. This is 
something I, I really feel that we, we need to get a hold of. It's not something I'm perfect at, but it's something we need to get a hold of, that we set the tone in our marriages. That's how a, th- a family thrives. It's pretty simple. God's way is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. The husband would set the tone. We often want to be the fix-it guy. I do too. I like to fix things. If there's a problem, I want to be working out solutions to fix it. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's not. We're going to watch a little video now that will, uh, I'm sure, demonstrate that to us. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. You do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail out. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. Yeah, I, that sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on! Ow. If you would just... Don't! Try to see things... Well, that's just, um, that's just a funny illustration for you about... Uh, how husbands like to try and fix things sometimes. And sometimes it is an obvious thing that needs fixing. But sometimes we do need to, as husbands, lead our wives to God and to say, let's go to God together on this. Sometimes the problem is not fixable. Sometimes it's not easy to see a solution. And we just need to say, come on, let's pray. And I think the same goes for the other way as well. Wives, sometimes we need to encourage our husbands to get before God. Now, that really changes things. When you stop trying to uh, always try and fix things and just say, let's pray about this. Elkanah, he doesn't do that in this passage. He says to his wife, why are you crying? Stop crying. Snap out of it. And then he points his wife to him. He says, am I not worth more to you than 10 sons? He's trying to paint himself as the solution here, when really he should be pointing Hannah to God. Now, thankfully, despite Elkanah's failure, Hannah does go before God, and she does take a hold of God in prayer. And really where we're going to be for the rest of this message is looking at Hannah's example. She's an amazing example of prayer. So let's continue in the story together in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, 
I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Hannah poured out her soul before the Lord. I don't believe this was the first time that Hannah did this. I don't believe it was the first time because year upon year, she was being provoked by Panina, the other wife in this really weird marriage. Every year she was being provoked, mocked, teased. Every year reminded of her barrenness. Every year shown uh, shame from others. And she poured her heart out to God. She knew that God could take it. She knew that God had big shoulders. She knew that God could take her complaint. She knew that God could take her lament. She poured her heart out before him. And friends, I want to encourage us this morning, when it comes to prayer, let's not have pretense before God. We've seen already, haven't we, that God sees the heart, not the outward appearance. He sees the heart. And I've, I love praying with people in church. It's one of my favorite things to do. But sometimes I get the impression that people are trying to impress God a little bit, whether it be through the words that we say or the way we say it. We're not ourselves before God. And we can actually come to God and we don't have to put on a pretense. If we're not happy and we're going through difficulty, we can tell God that. We, we, we can lament the things that we're going through. Hannah looks like she's drunk here. Eli's watching on. He says, put your wine away from you. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm discouraged. And I'm pouring my soul out to God. This would have looked like something. This would have looked like her really in desperately, uh, a desperate situation, crying out to God. And as we're going to see, God does intervene. But we need to understand the importance of pouring our heart out before God. The importance of laying before God what it is that we're going through. It might be joy, and we can pour out our heart before God and jump for joy and thank God for his goodness to us. But it might be that we're going through pain and difficulty. It's important because God understands it all, and he wants us to take it to him. Don't be false before him. Let him work on the real you. Don't put on this this front. Let him work on the real you. Hannah doesn't care that she looks drunk. She's deeply distressed. She's crying bitterly. She's letting it all out. Don't put on a nice religious front. If you want to go after God's heart, then be like David. David was described as a man after God's heart, wasn't he? And we see the Psalms that most of them he wrote were songs where he really does put his heart on display. He really does allow himself to be, he pours himself out before God. And Psalm 102 is one such psalm. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. This is a lament. This is him calling out to God. And whilst it's poetic language, we don't, if you're not good at poetry, don't bother. Just be yourself before God. Pour out your heart. We see it doesn't remain there. He then recalls truth about God. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute. He's remembering God hears me. He does not despise their prayer. We've got, to, we've got to lament. We can pour our heart out to God, but we can remind ourselves that God hears our prayer. And we need to remind ourselves that who God is. It says later on in that psalm, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. And they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. He's recalling that it's God who laid the earth's foundation. It's God, that he's everlasting, that he's never changing, that he will keep his promises to them. 
a key to going after God's heart is that we pour out our hearts before him, that we remind ourselves of who he is. If we don't do this, if we don't do this like the psalmist in Psalm 102 or like Hannah, what happens is this. We get bitter towards God. Our hearts become cold towards God. And we might still go to church, maybe to kind of put on a bit of a show for our friends or for our kids, or just because it's our routine. But we don't really draw near to God, and we don't come to, uh, to, to seek after his heart. We must, must, when we're going through difficulty, when we're going through trials, we must pour out our hearts to God. We, we have permission to lament I love this. In, there's a book called Lamentations. If you needed any hint that God's okay with us lamenting, there's a whole book called Lamentations in the middle of your Bible. And the writer says this, I remember my, the bitterness, the affliction. My soul remembers it and is bowed down within me. This is chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This is what it looks like to lament. Yes, I remember it. I I can take these situations before God and I can say, Lord, this is going on right now. This is rubbish. This This is hurting. Why is this going on? But then we come to remind ourselves of the truth. That's what lament looks like. And we have this, this kind of stiff upper lip thing in our culture. We kind of, kind of put on a brave face. This is not the culture of the Bible. It's not the culture that God would want for us, that we were able to actually pour out our hearts before him, that we're able to lament things. We often, when we have funerals, don't we, we, we say, you know, it's going to be a celebration. And that's what so-and-so would have wanted. And that's okay. That's fine. But it's also okay to cry and to mourn. It's okay to do that. We don't have to put on a stiff upper lip and pretend that everything's okay. So we have permission to lament. We also have permission to wrestle with God. We have permission to wrestle with him. I don't know if you know this, but if you're a Christian here, when you became a Christian, you were given an invitation to a wrestling match. You were given an invitation to wrestle with God in prayer. We see that. Hannah's doing that. She's wrestling with God. She's taking her complaint to him, and she's praying for a solution. God wants to test our prayer muscle sometimes. There's a guy called Jacob, who's one of the the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. He wrestles with God all night long, we're told. God comes to him, appears to him in human form. It may well have been Jesus, maybe thousands of years before Jesus came in Bethlehem in the Nativity story. He wrestled with God all night long, and he says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. That's how Jacob wrestled with God in prayer. And I think sometimes prayer is like that. Not all of the time. Sometimes it's quite simple. But this week, I've known wrestle with God. As I've been seeking after God for a situation, I've been wrestling with him and seen some breakthrough on it. Praise God. Sometimes it's a wrestling match. Matthew chapter 15, there's a, there's a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, and she asks Jesus to heal her child. And his response is really strange. You think Jesus is full of compassion and love, and you think, yeah, he'd say, absolutely let me hear he seems to push this woman away he seems to sort of push her back but we see that he's actually testing her resolve in prayer and she comes back to him tenaciously and he ends up healing her child and he praises her faith he praises her faith i'd love to have my faith praised wouldn't you she was tenacious she knew something of jesus character 
She took it to him again. God is inviting us to wrestle with him in prayer. If we don't do this, friends, then we will easily fall into self-pity. Self-pity is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. Ugly things come in our lives when we allow ourselves to wallow in self-pity. But God is asking us to lament. He's asking us to wrestle with him in prayer. Be like Hannah. Take your pain to God. Cry out to him. Find the space to do that. Find the space to to cry out to God. Maybe it's not always easy in your uh, living room in the morning when you've got your kids playing around you. Find time. Find time to get before God and pour your heart out to him. Ask him. Petition him. God knows what we need. And yet, the word again and again says, petition God. Bring your requests to him. Petition him. And friends, we as a church on Wednesday night, we're gathering here Doors open 7.30, we kick off at 7.45 with worship, and we're going to pray. We're going to take hold of God, and we're going to ask for his blessing on this town. This town is in a bit of a mess at the moment. I don't know if you've picked up on the news this week. There's been gang uh, violence and drug use and all kinds of things going on, and there's no solution to it, really, unless we get 10,000 police officers suddenly rocking up in our town, which I don't think is going to happen. We need to pray. We need to pray, and there's many other things we're going to pray for. We're going to pray that God will provide for us a new building. We're going to pray for us that he will save many people through our Alpha course. We're going to pray. We're going to get hold of God in prayer. And on Wednesday, as elders, we are going to fast. We're going to give up food for the day. And you might want to do that as well. You might want to give up a meal or a couple of meals and join us on Wednesday night and call out to God. Uh, Fasting, many things that I could say about fasting. One of the things is that as we fast, our hunger for God is increased. Our hunger for God is increased. I want to encourage you, maybe consider that this week on Wednesday, then come together on Wednesday evening to pray. If you can't make it because you can't get childcare, join us at home. You can pray at home and your prayers will be heard. God, in a mysterious way that I can't get my head around because he knows the end from the beginning and he's infinitely wise, seemingly changes his mind at the result of people's prayers. That happens on a few occasions in the scriptures. He'd resolved to close Hannah's womb in this situation. It said on a couple of occasions, we read it together, the Lord closed her womb. Hannah prayed, God changed the situation. I don't understand it, but God is inviting us to wrestle with him in prayer, to take hold of him and to pray. If you're desperate and in need, you will pray. If you're desperate and in need, you will pray. We might sometimes think about heroes of the faith and we think, I cannot pray like them. I cannot possibly pray like them because they were really special and they, they had eloquent words and they uh, maybe had more time to pray. If you're desperate, you will pray. And it says here in this chapter that the Lord remembered Hannah. It says the Lord remembered Hannah. And that's only said a couple of times more in the Old Testament. It talks about Abraham, the Lord remembered Abraham, and the Lord remembered Noah. This ordinary woman who was despised because of her barrenness was mocked and provoked, this ordinary woman, it says, the Lord remembered her. It's the Lord of the whole universe who is flinging stars into space and creating things and is immensely powerful. He remembered this woman, this humble woman. He remembered her. And, you know, friends, we have an even greater story to tell because we will never be forgotten by God. We will never be forgotten by God because... Jesus Christ, he called out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out. He poured out his soul, it says. He did the same as Hannah. 
He's pouring out his soul. And he's asking God, will you take this cup of suffering away from me? And the answer was silence. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. And the next day, he went to the cross. The next day, he brought enormous suffering and pain. And the Bible says that that was no accident, that it was the plan of God. It was the plan of God that our sin and our shame could be taken away from us as far as the east is from the west so that we can come into a relationship with God, that we can know him as our father. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, this amazing truth. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then, this is the key thing I want you to take from this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because of Jesus, we can draw near to the throne of grace, to God's throne of grace, and we can find mercy and help in our time of need. I mean, Hannah didn't even have that good news to get a hold of. She knew something of God's character. We, as we see Jesus on the cross, we can know that God will not turn us away, that he will remember us, that we can pray in the midst of pain, and God will remember us. Maybe you're going through the mill a little bit right now. Maybe you, like Hannah, are in pain. Maybe you are in a situation where you'd like to have a child, and you cannot. Maybe you're going through a very difficult situation in your marriage. Maybe... Your husband has failed you. Maybe your wife has failed you. And we'd love to pray with you. We'll get you to pray as well, I think. It's so important that you, you know, we're not, we're not professional prayers here. We'd love to stand with you and help you. But God, is, his, his, his ear is, is turned to you. He will remember you. Or maybe you're here this morning thinking, I, I don't really know what I believe. I'm here and uh, I've enjoyed the songs. I enjoyed the funny video, but I don't really know if I believe in God. This morning, why don't you say to God, God, if you're here, then hear my prayer because I need you. Why don't you, why don't you call out to him? He's got a gift of, of forgiveness for you, free gift. You take a hold of it so you believe in Jesus. And if you've done that this morning, maybe as we've sung, you might do that. Come and speak to us on the prayer team. And we'd love to pray with you as you start your journey with God. But I would love to pray for us now. Thank you, Father, that we can now come before the throne of grace with confidence and we find mercy and help in our time of need. I thank you that there's mercy and help for us in our time of need right now. And Lord, we want to be like Hannah, who in the midst of pain called out to you. Lord, I want to be like that. I don't want to turn to self-pity I don't want to become cold towards you. I want to come before you. I pray that for all of my my friends here. Father, I pray that we've come before you in the midst of pain, that we call out to you, that we would lament our affliction and that we'd call to mind what is true. That we'd call to mind that your mercies are new every morning, that you are our portion, you are enough for us. Lord, I pray for any marriages here 
that are struggling, I pray, Father, that you would strengthen them now. Just put a resolve in the hearts of men and women across this room. They will seek to live out marriage your way. Lord God, we want to honor your name and thank you that we now have a way to come before you because of all that you've done for us. And we just say, God, this this life is for you. This life is for you. Lord, I I want to honor you in everything that I do. Lord, in my marriage, I want to honor you. Lord, in my friendships, I want to honor you. I want to help point others to you in their time of need. Lord, let it be that we don't always try and fix it when we can't fix it. Let us bring others before you. Our friends, our spouses, let us get before you in our time of need. I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, would you draw them near to yourself now? Would you just touch hearts now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit? Would it be undeniable? I, I know God has touched me. I know God is here. Draw people to yourself now, I pray. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.